Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Hey, welcome everybody uh, to the podcast. This is Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group, filling in for Annette Hinkle, who is um, on her way in transit back from a short trip somewhere um, and unable to join us today. So, uh, but we do have a full crew today. So uh, the voice you heard, of course, was Bill Sutton, our managing editor. Hi, Bill. Hey, Joe. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of Express News Group. Yeah, I get, I'm sorry. I stole your introduction. I uh, and we also have Georgie Manu, uh, Catherine Manu. Hey, Joe, I'm Catherine Manu. Sometimes people call me Georgie, and I'm one of the publishers of the Express News Group. And uh, Brendan O'Reilly is with us. Hey, Papa. You know, people who like aren't regular listeners are just <laughs> going to think that's like a random nickname that I have. <laughs> it's not. Your new Papa. Hi, I'm Brendan. I am the deputy managing editor. And uh, joining us today is one of our extremely talented feature writers, Kaylin Riley. Uh, hi, Kaylin. Hi, Kaylin Riley, news reporter. Thanks for the inclusion of the word extremely. Extremely and extraordinary, yes. Uh, and we want to talk about one of your stories uh, that you've done recently, which was on local food pantries. Um, this was kind of an important story to do, I think, because... We, we talked about this a lot during the pandemic uh, because it was so obvious that people were in need and the, the food pantries were really stepping up to, to help out. Uh, you know, something they do all the time, by the way, the pandemic just certainly emphasized that. But I, I think it was a, a really important story to point out to people that the food pantries are having a tough time this summer, which is really unusual, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... That's definitely true. And, you know, I think what a lot of people, there's a lot of things that maybe people aren't, aren't necessarily thinking about when it comes to food pantries. I think during the pandemic, it was kind of on people's minds and there was a lot of, um, you know, a groundswell of support because everyone was kind of realizing we were in this like unprecedented moment. They knew that people, many people had lost their jobs. And I think, you know, in our minds, we're used to thinking about, okay, if someone loses their job, boom, they need help. But the reality is that many, if not most, and at this moment, vast majority of the people that are clients at food pantries in our area are not unemployed. In fact, they're often overemployed. They're working two or even three jobs and still need to come to the food pantry, which really drives home the point about how desperate of a situation we're in right now. People are still recovering from financial setbacks they experienced during COVID, which, you know, is still going on, by the way. People are um, really just, you know, in desperate need. And while some of the food pantries say that in this current moment, they're okay in terms of meeting the demand they're thinking ahead to the fall and the winter. Anyone who heats their home with oil knows like that the next time they have to fill up their oil tank is going to be really painful. And just, you know, a lot of people have less work. Maybe they have a, se a seasonal job in the summer, but that income goes away. So there's a whole host of issues that are facing people who need that extra support right now. And it's definitely not going to get better anytime soon. And it's not just the, the clients that are being affected by the current inflation, right? It's the, the food pantries themselves and the cost of, uh, of the food that, that they have to buy to, you know, to stock the shelves to, to help everybody during this time, right? Right. And, you know, these food pantries pride themselves not just on providing food for people, but on providing nutritional 
high quality food. You know, it's not just everyone deserves to have food. It's everyone deserves to have healthful food. Mm. So, you know, you deserve to be able to have fresh produce. You deserve to be able to eat meat, you know, chicken, poultry, you deserve to be able to even have items that maybe aren't, you know, considered necessary cookies, a dessert, something, anything like that. They really pride themselves on that. A lot of the local farms really pitch in to help when it comes to the fresh, fresh produce as well. But, you know, everything is more expensive and certain items are, it's even more acute when you talk about, you know, meat products, um, it's really tough, and so the pantries are doing their best. Ags, I mean, you were you were talking you were talking to to Holly Wheaton, and she said that two years ago she was paying seventy cents seventy seven cents for a dozen eggs, and and now she's paying yeah. um, two seventy five a dozen, and that's in that's in two years because of the inflation, right? When, yeah, when I was reporting on the story, there were moments where I had to like double check. I was like. Me, I must have heard that wrong. Can you like repeat that? Because there's so many of the things they were saying weren't like my brain didn't want to accept it. My brain was kind of rejecting it out of hand. Like, no, that can't be true. You know, the cost of the food and the money that the pantries need to spend. And then, you know, this, this is not just a story about food pantries. It's also a story about something we've been reporting on a lot, which is the affordable housing crisis as well. So they all they all go hand in hand. And it's, it's really the whole system and situation has been unsustainable for a long time. But like, COVID, inflation, it's all kind of like bringing it to this tipping point that you really should have been at a while ago. But you know, people come into the food pantry, more than one pantry director told me stories about clients of theirs coming in in tears because they cannot their rent they're not saying oh my rent's been raised their rent is just doubled doubled i mean some of these people are, are they're already paying thousands of dollars a month they're already paying what anyone else would consider like a mortgage payment level of rent every month and then just out of nowhere their landlords are telling them your rent is going to be doubled so they have nowhere else to go. One stat that I thought was really interesting that Holly Wheaton told me was that the average number of family size visiting the pantry had jumped. I don't have the article in front of me this second, but it was... Holly is, uh, that's Springs Food Pantry? Springs Food Pantry. So the, they, they keep, you know, the, a lot of these, they all keep good stats and information. And she said the average family size really jumped. And what that told her was that more, the average number of people living in a household. So that what that told her is that the housing is the biggest problem. More people are living in a house together because they either cannot afford or, and can't find someplace else to live. So they're kind of just living in, you know, more people in a house, which is just, you know, not great for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I mean, so I live in Springs um, and my mom is actually a volunteer at the Springs Food Pantry. And I would say like, if you were looking at like a traditional home um, and I'm, I'm talking about a year round rental, not a summer rental, because that's just like even more absurd. Um, but you're probably looking at, if you're lucky, maybe you can find a house for three grand, um, more like four. $4,000 a month, which is, I am fortunate enough to own my house. That is more than my mortgage payment. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I think that people have this, we talk about this a lot and a lot of the reporting we do about this, they have this skewed idea of the Hamptons. It's one of the reasons I try and strike the Hamptons whenever I see it mm -hmm. and replace it with like a specific name or like even the South Fork, because there's this idea that everybody here you know, as well off. And, you know, even if you have a high level professional job, there's a likelihood that you are still struggling to meet the cost of living out here. Um, and it's just like this disconnect that I think happens when the rest of the world peeks in on our little corner of New York. Um, and they, they think that everybody's affluent and there's lots of work out here. And so how could anybody have all these needs, but 
you know, the cost of living was bad pre-inflation, post-inflation, and, you know, amid COVID, which, you know, housing sales are down according to the real estate market, but rents are through the roof. I mean, it's just, it, like you said, Kaylin, it's just completely unsustainable. And I bet a lot of the people on these pantry lines are people that you would not expect would need the resources that a food pantry offers. Yeah, Kaylin, something in, in your story that really struck me was one of the directors, and I was it Holly, I'm not sure, who said that this is, this is something she hears from people who say, well, why don't these people get jobs? Um, there, is, there really is a disconnect, I think, mm-hmm. about who is, is in need and, and the circumstances out here that, that, these are, that, that it's mostly working families who are, who are going to the food pantries. I mean, think about, you know, because people are seeing, they're not making the connection because they're seeing what's going on right now is, yes, you do. You see help wanted signs everywhere. People are, are the companies, businesses, they need work. They need workers, right? So people think to themselves, if there's all these jobs out there, what, why are we solving this problem? And the thing is, they are, they are working multiple jobs. There's not enough hours left in the day. And sometimes they can't even come to the food pantry to pick up the food because they're busy working and they need the food. Like that alone is just wild, you know? So yes, they have jobs. They have like two or three jobs and they still cannot afford to like put food on the table. That should, that should like, actually anger everyone yeah, yeah i agree with that do you, can you talk a little bit about the 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 way food pantries operate i mean they get donations but they also get help from other organizations right that there's and and some of the some of the pantries benefit from some local farm operations and can you just talk mm-hmm. about where some of that food comes from and I, so much of it, I think, is is from private donations. But w- what else is is involved? Well, I mean, there's large food banks like um, Long Island Cares and uh, I forget the name East at the Harvest, some something Harvest. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. So they're getting food from places. They do they do get like different grants and funding, but I think it was um, Molly Bishop at Heart of the Hamptons that was telling me there was one grant or a certain degree of funding that they'd already burned through. Um, they get, a, there's a lot of local organizations um, that will help, you know, in terms of money and they were really helpful during COVID, but, you know, when you're trying to, to engage the community for a higher level of fundraising and you say, okay, here's an emergency, there's an emergency situation like COVID everyone's in that together. Everyone's feeling that to, you know, to some degree, people want to step up and they do, and they feel good because they've done something in, in that what everyone kind of understands to be temporary moment of need, but there's nothing temporary about this situation anymore. And so how do you engage people when the the truth is that it's just like a per what feels like a permanent crisis it's hard to go out to the community and just constantly be like, no, we, that, that large infusion of money you gave us, can you like, just make that a permanent thing? You know, it's really tough. Even I think Holly was saying, you know, she used to feel kind of like, oh, you don't want to be constantly asking people for money, but now I just, I just come right out and ask because I have to, you know, it's really tough. And and that's gotta, that's gotta be so hard when you know that the people are, you know, people, people who may not even be clients of the food pantry are just struggling so much right now with with the economy, the way that it is to, to struggle to put food on your own table, and then to ask them to, Mm -hmm. you know, for for any for any extra to go to the food pantries, it's just got to be really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Vicki Littman who told me, you know, one of the bright, small bright spots was, you know, a lot of people that did move out here full time during the pandemic, they gained an awareness that maybe they hadn't had when they were part-time residents need mm. out here. And so some of them stepped up and, you know, typically people who have moved out here full-time from New York city 
have, you know, financial means that maybe the average year round resident doesn't have. So they did, they did feel like they had some people that stepped up in that regard, which was good to see. And, you know, the local farms were always very good to them, you know, Amber Waves, um, uh, a couple different farms, you know, just always pitching in, supporting. And then, you know, they're, they're, they're even growing their own food. I mean, at St. Rosalie's in, in Hampton Bays and also at the Sisters of St. Joseph, they've recently built these really big thriving vegetable gardens. I mean, they're really just going going the very basic route, which is like, we have to grow some of this food ourselves, especially with fresh produce and trying to provide provide that, you know, it's, it's really, it's really like an all hands on deck, all approaches kind of need for the, for the pantries and every idea has to be you know, taken seriously. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books. Independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. Carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. I actually wonder if we'll start to see, you know, more people just in general, um, not just people in need, um, building their own home gardens in more earnest than you've seen in years past, just as a means of, you know, reducing that, you know, food cost at your house. I mean, we've talked about um, finally starting to do something like that at our own home because we enjoy it, but also just because it makes sense. Um, Sometimes gardening can be more expensive than buying, you know, the most expensive tomato at the grocery store. Like there's a meme that goes around. It's like, finally, after six months of work and $700 invested, I'm three to four weeks away from harvesting my first 79 cent tomato. And actually not, it doesn't even say my first, it says a single 79 cent tomato. Um, Though I do like to point out that like in my organic garden, you know, that would be a $5 tomato at a at a farmer's market i don't grow 79 cent hothouse tomatoes but it's a huge investment of time and if you're working three jobs guess what you can't maintain a garden because you can't get out there and weed every day you can't Mm -hmm. get out there and water every day um you need space you need light so if you're in an area with a lot of trees or if you don't have a yard and you can't get any light on your vegetables you're not going to have a food garden and the deer the deer are a huge obstacle to gardening here so unless you have a deer fence or you have a yard that somehow excludes deer uh your garden is just going to be a buffet for the animals rabbits included yeah and you know the thing that gets me about all of this i go back to the famous analogy of the frog in the pan of water that's slowly heating up we're talking more and more about a crisis of some very basic human needs in our region, housing. Now we're talking about food. Um, you know, water is certainly going to be on the the, the conversation soon. Um, this is a real crisis, and and I think it's a national crisis that that is certainly being worsened by. The, the pandemic certainly helped create some of this, and I think that the the economy is still feeling sort of the the shock of it. But this region has its own challenges that have been there for years. And it feels like uh, it feels like it's getting really to a point where we need to start being concerned. I mean, I, 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 I really worry. I mean, these kinds of conversations come up all the time, but um, everything seems to be getting worse in that regard, the housing situation, the the food situation. And uh, I I wonder if we're all sort of shrugging it off 
when we ought to be paying a little more attention. This is, this is worrisome. And, and the food pantries are sort of the, the canary in the coal mine. I think you, they'll be the first ones to feel the stress. Uh, and that's what I find most troubling, Kaylin. I, I, I thought, you know, talking to the food pantries, they're on the front lines of, of this. And um, when they start waving a white flag in the middle of summer, which is normally a time when the food pantries are playing catch up. Uh, and that's an important point too, that summer is not normally a time when, when the food pantries are particularly stressed, right? Right. They're not, no. And again, like they're not, you know, they're not all acutely stressed right at this moment, but, but where they're at at this moment. And, and, and I think looking ahead to this fall and winter mm-hmm. is what's really troubling for them. And, you know, um, Catherine Andrejack at St. Rosalie's made another good point as well, where they, they have a lot of clients that are on a fixed income. So whether they're disabled or they have a, you know, mental health issue or on social security, anything that requires them to be on a fixed income, you know, some people might be able to still get by by saying, Hey, I'm going to pick up some extra, I'm going to pick up some extra work, but a lot of, there's a lot of people that that's not an option for. So that's when inflation really, really crushes some people, because if they were just, if they, you know, if they were living right close to the margin and then they, that this something like this happens, their carefully constructed system kind of falls apart. And then you see an influx of those types of people um, needing help. And, and, and you just imagine like, it's only going to get worse. I mean, I know I have like, like a little bit of dread at the thought of like what our next oil bill is going to be when we have to fill up our tank. I'm already kind of like bracing myself for the sticker shock of what that will be. And I mean, it's just, it's just tough. The other thing I think about with these people, and I was thinking about while I was reporting the story, because Evie Ramono from Sag Harbor Food Pantry was talking to me about how back in the day, her husband, you know, there were times where money was tight and he worked an extra job and he had to work hard. But like at the end of the day, that hard work paid off in the sense of they had a home, food was on the table for their children. So working hard is tough, but when you feel like you're getting the result that hard work comes from, you it, it gives you the energy you need to get up in the morning and work that double shift. But it just must be so intensely demoralizing to just be doing two and three extra jobs and then still have to get online and go to the food pantry. Just like imagine what that's like, because it's, you can't, if you're temporarily unemployed and you need to go to the food pantry, you can say to yourself, this is a temporary thing. Or if you're on a fixed income, well, I just can't take on other work. That's why I need to go there. But the, the way you, the, the despair you must feel if you're working as hard as you possibly can and still have that that no one no human being should have to experience that feeling hi this is michael wright i'm a reporter for the southampton press the east hampton press the sag harbor express and 27east.com i cover east hampton town and follow important stories about the environment including the coming south fork wind farm its impact on the fishing industry and other water quality issues we follow east hampton town and village government and i'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers my colleagues and i in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community but we can't do it without our subscribers if you find the work we're doing valuable to you please subscribe by visiting 27east.com forward slash subscribe Thank you very much. You know, there's another thing that a a way that people who are less fortunate are penalized at the grocery store is that they buy what they need in small quantities to get through the week because that's what they can afford. Mm -hmm. And if you're spending $2 on a roll of paper towels every week instead of $12 on a dozen rolls of paper towels or whoever the math works Mm -hmm. out, you know, you're spending more over the course of a year. You think about the little tiny bottles of dish soap that last a few weeks that people buy for like $5 instead of spending $10 on the big jug of dish soap that lasts for six months. So people who are less fortunate actually end up spending more on groceries for certain staples. I mean, people who have money to throw around might be buying certain things that are more expensive. Like we're making jokes uh, yesterday about caviar 
Um, so it's not like poor people are uh, paying extra for caviar. They're just not buying it. But there are certain staples that you need to have in the fridge. Like, am I going to buy a quart of milk, a half gallon of milk, or a gallon of milk? And sometimes all they can afford is a half gallon of milk, even though it would have been cheaper to just buy a gallon once a week instead of two half gallons twice a week. I'm sort of intrigued, too, by the trickle-down effect of this on the immigrant community, because this area runs to a large degree on immigrant labor. And I think that's something we don't like to say out loud very often, but it's absolutely true. But the promise of coming to this region from other areas of the world that maybe have less opportunity, if you get here and you find that the amount of opportunity you have isn't really all that much better. Uh, we may very well, you know, we, we have a labor shortage to begin with. It may get harder and harder um, if, if immigrant labor starts to go away. Um, I, I just, I, I'm not sure how sustainable all of this is. Uh, I think wages have to come up and it's, I find it ironic that we, just recently had sort of the protests that took place out here where uh, you had a New York City organization come out and wave signs that say tax the rich. And, and we definitely need to have a conversation in this country about inequity. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. But I feel, like, I feel like those protests really missed the opportunity to make some specific points about what we need to do and um, and ended up, I think, being more of a circus that that didn't really deliver any kind of a message that 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 really resonated. And it's a shame because this is a region where that message should resonate, you know, in a, in a big way. We we definitely need to talk about inequity in this region. The inequity just continues to grow. But I think it, you know, those protests were, you know, ironic because it's like, you know, the protesters were shutting down, you know, thoroughfares and ways to get to work for a lot of working class people. Like, you know, they came here like, we're going to shut down the streets of the wealthy. And it's like, you know, the wealthy were probably at the beach, you know, they weren't like trying to get to where they needed to go. Like that was me. And that was a, a lot of other people getting to work. Um, the wealthy don't leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, and the protesters, you know, shut down East Hampton Airport on Monday morning, you know, pre preventing preventing those people from from going home. And it's like, no, it's, it's OK if they go home on yeah. Monday morning. We don't mind. <laughs> but, you know, and then you're reading their names and look like I, I you know, I, I appreciate activism and I, I love the right to protest and. You know, but I do prescribe a little bit more to a, like a think globally, act locally, um, you know, kind of model in my own activism. But, you know, it's like a lot of the places that it's, you know, the protesters were from Cambridge, Massachusetts and, you know, and, and New York City. And, you yeah. know, it just it did feel I, I agree with you 100 percent, Joe. It felt like it could have been so much more. And there are so many local issues that we're talking about on this podcast today that maybe those protesters could have, you know, tried to address in some way, um, you know, that they did. And to their credit, they did connect up. They connected up with the Shinnecock Nation. Who, That's true. That is true. Which, and, and their protests, I think, were were 180 degrees. I think those were very specific and, and about important local issues that they have every right to protest about and and those protesters participated in those protests as well but i think the the more general protests that they held just kind of lacked i i but you know maybe that's part of the problem. That, that being said give them give them credit for you know for for coming out and organizing Absolutely. and and for at least making some headlines and and you know they didn't just make headlines here they weren't just in our paper they were in you know in a lot of the city papers um ran stories on them so so at least there's some attention to um to to, to the plight of of um less fortunate people i think and and the lack of clarity is a, is a bigger problem yeah. i mean you know we we don't know we we need to start having real world solutions to these to these issues uh locally but nationally as well but I think, you know, it's like, and look, guys, like the five of us have been talking about affordable housing for how many years now? I mean, it's not a COVID crisis. Like we, it was a crisis long before COVID. Yeah. 
And, and we're continuing to talk about it today. And, you know, I think that especially out here on the East End, we're going to have to have conversations about density and we're going to have to be honest with ourselves about the fact that while preservation of open space has been really successful in preserving the aesthetic and the beauty um, and the environment that we live in and that we all love and it's the reason we live here that's great but it's also you know, it hasn't helped the housing situation um, that, you know, we have all of this land that, you know, will never be touched. And I do think we have to start looking at some dense, um, creative housing solutions, not just for the year round population, but like, as we were discussing, just the workforce. Um, I was talking to a neighbor today who um, volunteers at Amber Waves and he was talking about another farm, not Amber Waves, and how, and it's a successful farm, and it's a locally owned farm, and they, this year, they bought a house in Riverhead, and like a 16-seat van, because they could no longer expect that they were going to be able to house their employees out here, um, and so they house their employees in Riverhead, and they truck them out every day, you know, I mean, and this is what you know, employers are having to do to have a workforce that just supports the population that lives here. Um, not an extravagant workforce, like that's just doing what needs to be done for this place to operate. Um, so I, I think we're going to have to have much more serious conversations about how we deal with this in a real way instead of these like, you know, five, 10, 12 unit housing complexes which are great you know like that's like something but you know we got it we but have they to get gobbled more. up we have to do more quickly. it's thousands yeah. of units is like i believe the number that i think it was like two thousand units or something was the number like five years ago of what was yeah, just to catch up yeah just to catch up kaylin from your reporting is it fair to say that if we were somehow able and obviously it's a big ask but if we were somehow able to address the affordable housing situation this crisis with the, this is, this is one of those um, related crises that pops up. If we could fix the affordable housing situation, you probably wouldn't have the strain on the food pantry. Affordable housing is the root cause of everything. This isn't an employment problem. It's really not anything more than a housing problem. And this is the, it, like the housing problem is is what leads to everything that's the root cause they've all they've all the pantry directors told me if we don't solve the housing problem this problem with the food pantries will never go away and will only get worse so COVID aside it's not even really i mean that at its root cause that is really what it's about so it can kind of it, they can tread water when COVID's not around and when inflation's not around barely but because of the housing crisis, they're never going to have their, their, the water is always going to be here. And then when a, one other thing happens, I'm pointing underneath, like right underneath my mouth, basically. When one other thing happens, they're underwater immediately. That's the issue. And again, it isn't going to get better. I mean, I'm not an economist, but like when inflation happens and then like the the crisis that kind of causes it abates do all the people just say oh we'll just drop all our prices now like that's not what happens right things just get once the ship leaves the port like things just get more and more expensive they don't get less expensive and you you know you can pay people more money and you should but like there's no there's if you're already working two or three jobs and you still need to go to the food pantry the way to get relief isn't to like pay you isn't just to pay you more per hour, which absolutely they should do. The way to get relief is to be able to find somewhere to live that doesn't cost four or $5,000 a month for you and your family. Brendan, is it as simple as saying that the market just doesn't provide for this need? And so the towns have to step in and, and do it, or they have to find creative ways to do it. There's no signs right now that rent prices are going to retreat by any significant amount. The supply of houses for sale here is so tight, which means fewer home buyers, which means more people looking to rent. 
and you have some people who are month to month, you have some people who are on leases and the age of being able to renew your lease every year for the same amount is over. When your landlord knows that there's 9% inflation in July, that means that the next renewal, they're going to be asking for at least a 9% increase. But I think people would be lucky at this point to get a 9% increase because when you talk to people, it's more like 17%, 20%. So that's why you need some fixed price housing. And the only way you get fixed price housing is by building affordable housing units where people could actually put restrictions on what the rent is and make sure that once you're in, any increase is going to be modest. And it's not going to be like last year, you could afford this and you could afford to feed yourself and buy prescriptions. This year, you can't. I, I, when I was, when I wrote a story a little while back related to affordable housing, and I haven't done much reporting on it, but a, a little bit um, in speaking with Assemblyman Thiel and Jay Schneider, no, maybe it was Jay Schneiderman. Well, both of them really, but um, the idea of the, this idea of like accessory apartments. And I mean, listen, it's not a complete, there's no one thing that's going to solve the whole problem. And a lot of it's minimal stuff, but that idea was intriguing to me because it seemed it could be mutually beneficial to two different groups of people. Um, if you have room on your property to build an accessory building, whether it's a cottage or something, as long as you agree that I think the idea was like to set up some sort of system where as long as you agree to assert to not have the rent be at a certain reach a certain threshold or go over a certain threshold there the town could you know give you the money up front to build the accessory structure and then you start renting it and x amount a month you pay back to the town in once you start renting it and then after you pay that back, you just get to keep all of the rent. And the idea is you just agree to, to not ever raise the rent like too high above a certain threshold. That was intriguing to me because um, as someone who lives out here and you know is not a wealthy person, the idea that you could bring in a little extra income that way is intriguing. So there's a lot of people who maybe don't need to go to the food pantry, but really would love to bring in some extra income. I mean, I know tons of people who rent their homes for the summer for, for just that. That seems like an interesting way to increase housing because when you rent your home to someone wealthy for the summer, well, that benefits you because you get money, but you're really not benefiting. You're benefiting someone above you in the socioeconomic status that doesn't really need to be benefited in any way. Whereas if you have an accessory apartment, you know, you and you have a, you know, maybe you know, um, uh, two parents. I mean, it doesn't solve the problem for larger families because they need some, they need more space, but maybe if there was a single mom and her child or, you know, two, a, a couple trying to make it, then they would benefit, you'd benefit. And there's, there's some ways to provide more housing that doesn't include like taking a giant swath of land. You don't, you'd almost wouldn't even know it was there. You know, so it could be a good approach to use with obviously creating the bigger units that can house a larger number of people. Yeah, but the, the key there, and that's what you mentioned, is the idea of getting some aid to build those units. Because building those units, I have one, <laughs> it's really expensive and you yeah. will not get your investment back for like 20 years uh, at the affordable housing rate. And so, yeah. right. Well, that's the key. That's why I thought that help was key. It's like, you know, and we, we did it because we had, you know, my mother-in-law and, you know, and it's great. And my children are growing up with their grandmother right here. And I think for families, it's a really smart way. Like if you're a family with older children that are going to college that might want to come back here, you know, it's a way that you can allow them to even have the opportunity to come back here. But if you're going to do it for income, there needs to be some aid up front. And it's, it is a really good idea. And it is a way of it not being like an in-your-face housing project. I think it's going to have to be all of these things yeah. if we're going to start to dent it, though. <laughs> That's why I thought the idea of getting that aid, because I think there's a decent number of people that would be like, I would love to get some rental income, but I don't have the money up front to like 
pay a contractor to build a small cottage on my property. Well, especially right now. $150,000. Yeah. So the idea that you could do that, then, you know, when you, when you start collecting rent, sure, a portion of that has to go to pay it back, but you're housing someone, you're bringing in rent. And then once you pay it off, it's yours and you can continue to rent it for however long as you need. Just seemed like really appealing to me and such a better system of support that's mutually beneficial to two groups of people that could use the extra money rather than like, I mean, listen, if someone rich wanted to rent my house for the summer, I would rent it to them because I need that extra income, but, but I would, but, but it's so much, it's a much better system to help someone that's like desperate for housing and, and, and not have to. And you would be a part of a year round system, mm. you know, you'd be part of supporting a year round um, population yes. as opposed to doing a seasonal rental mm -hmm. for somebody who's coming here for vacation. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's like a huge, obviously part of our economy. Mm. Um, but, you know, you are then a part of the system. And then that unit, if it's done through the towns, you know, theoretically for the life of that property, because you would have a covenant mm. on your property that that unit is forever affordable. Right. Because the town helped you pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so that unit is now forever in this affordable housing bank right. um, and it's never going to go away. And there is a lot to be said for that. To follow up on Georgie's point about it never going away, which would be nice if that was the case. But in reality, it's not the case because there's some hitches, because if you have your house and you add an accessory apartment and you have a tenant and now you sell your house and the next owner says, well, I don't plan on living here 12 months out of the year. I plan on going away in August and running the house out, or maybe I'll be here in the summer. I'm going to go away in the winter. I'd like to sublet it or rent it out in the winter. And I don't mind having a year round tenant in the accessory apartment, but I want to have the option to rent out the main portion of the house at my discretion. You yeah, can't no, do you that. Can't. If you rent out the main portion of your house during the summer or whatever, you have to yeah. rip out your accessory apartment. Now that person who's living in the accessory apartment just lost their housing. And this isn't hypothetical. I'm thinking of a very specific case that I heard about recently. They would have been happy to keep the apartment, but they were not going to give up their right to rent out the main house for a month or so whenever they feel like it. So we need to free up these laws to keep the incentives high and to keep the disincentives low. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. But I think one of the reasons, I mean, we don't need to, <laughs> we've been talking for a while, but I think one of the reasons they want owner occupied um, in the main house is because the idea of giving you a financial incentive to build affordable housing isn't the idea to give you the ability to also rent your home for, you know, 50K and, you know, go crash with your parents for a few weeks. Like the idea is that you're creating year, like you're that the program for whether it's the main homeowner or the renter is supporting the year round people that are living here 12 months a year. Well, both, both units become affordable that way, because you're, you're adding that income. You could, you know, if the house sells to the house could sell to a couple or a family that wouldn't normally be able to afford a mortgage, but with that rental income coming in, then that makes the house affordable for them as well. So, so you know, to Kaylin's point, it benefits everybody there. You, you've created, in effect, two affordable units on different levels. Hang, hang on a second, though. There's one person that doesn't benefit, and that's the person who's selling the house um, and put the money in to put the affordable house in. They're going to get less money if if it's if it's an affordable house and it can't be rented out in the summer if you say if you if you put those rules in place and say well tough you you have put this accessory apartment on now you cannot rent this to a wealthy family the main house in the summer that house is going to be worth less money on the market and so you're penalizing the family that does it this is just the complication. Yeah. I mean, I, I point that out only because- I mean, less money on the market, Joe. I mean, there's like a four bedroom house down the street from mine that's like 1,800 square feet that's on the market for $2.5 million. I understand. Also, everyone's situation yeah. is different, yeah. right? Like, guys, I would 
want to crawl up in the fetal position and cry if I had to pack all my stuff out of my house (laughs) and make it presentable for other human beings to to live in that were paying me to live here. Do you know, I'd have to get serve pro over here. Yeah, it seems what it would take, what it would take. Meanwhile, I, I would love to have just a time, like a place all year. Those people could live there in their separate apartment and I would get the rental income. Now, listen, when you, when your tenants are good, it's great. My parents live in Sag Harbor. They have a lovely couple that lives with them. They get along great. It's everyone's happy. You get a tenant in there that you don't love that you have, you're living alongside them. So you have a bad situation. It can get real bad. Whereas if you're renting your house for the summer, you know, it's just a couple months and you're not also living alongside them. There's pros and cons all up and down and your situation depends on it all. But I think that there would be enough people who maybe is their goal. Like my goal is to never leave here. Yeah. So, so for me, that's kind of nice. My parents, they, they have not moved out of Sag Harbor even though they're about to be retired and living on a fixed income. And part of the reason they haven't seriously considered moving is because they're getting it. They're getting rental income on a year round basis. So that is, you know, that's really helpful to them to just for their monthly expenses. So there, they, that might actually enable them to stay. So this proves the realism bill that every conversation we have, becomes about affordable housing every single conversation. So to bring it back (laughs) to the food pantries to wrap things up, um, you have made what I think is a really important point, which is that we've talked about how inflation has affected the clients of the food pantries. And we've talked about how inflation is affecting the food pantries themselves and making it more expensive for them to provide food. It's also affecting the people who the food pantries rely on to support them. So we can say, hey, um, these food pantries need more help, need more support, but it's a real tough ask right now, isn't it? It is when you're paying $5 a gallon for gas and and you're paying, um, you know, 30% more at the grocery store every week, or if it's not higher, Um, you know, when, when everyday expenses are just so much, and there's nothing extra or not a lot extra. Um, certainly, if there is extra, where that extra goes is, is um, you know, it becomes more important. Um, I don't know what the answers are. I know one of the food pantries said that they don't usually have a summer uh, party, but they're having a summer party this year. And I think um, things like that, where you take advantage of people who are out here in the summer that, that aren't normally out here, that... Um, um, that are looking for ways to support the community. I, I think that's uh, that's important. Um, you know, I, I don't know what what the answers are. I mean, yes, um, support the food pantries if if you can, because um, you never know when you're going to need uh, you know need the help the other way around. So. And also for, you know, anybody who's listening, look, we do have a population of people out here, a, you know, a significant population that's out here, especially right now that, you know, they don't have these struggles at all and are actually nowhere near having these struggles and have an abundance of wealth. And, you know, if you're one of those people and you're listening to this podcast, like call your local food pantry and give them a donation, like, you, you know, they are supporting the people who are supporting your lifestyle here. Um, so be a part of that solution um, because I think if a lot more of those people were a little bit more involved in this kind of thing, it would go a long way towards making these food pantries feel like they could get through these crisis moments that don't appear. They to need to be involved politically too. And like be part of bringing some of these affordable housing solutions to bear and supporting the kind of lawmakers that are trying to come up with creative, proactive solutions, because, you know, I think people carry a lot of internal biases with them. And so maybe they'll go throw a chunk of change at a food pantry. But then when you're talking about like having an affordable housing unit in their neighborhood, all of a sudden they don't want to see that, you know? And so that's another thing that needs to, people really need to kind of like talk about too, is that 
it's great to support the food pantries financially, but ultimately that isn't going to be the, the real from the ground up solution to the problem. So definitely do that because it's an immediate crisis and they need that money like immediately, but like, you know, support the kind of, you know, decisions that are going to help. Vote, vote, vote this November. The Southampton yes. and East Hampton towns are having a proposition on the ballot in November to support the community housing fund, which, which will supply millions of dollars per year for affordable housing. And, and if the root of some of the crisis um, being felt at, at the food pantries right now is, is affordable housing, then, then this will certainly go a long way to, um, in the future, alleviate some of that. So vote in favor of the uh, community housing funds. We're here. And I think we just let it end there. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.